From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. This week, we're sharing a highlight from the 2016 New York Film Festival. As part of our NYFF Live series, which is sponsored by HBO, we invited several documentary filmmakers who were featured in the festival for a panel discussion about their latest work and overall approach to filmmaking. The esteemed panel included Linda Sapphire and Adam Schlesinger, whose film Restless Creature, Wendy Whalen, begins its official theatrical run here at the Film Society on May 24th. They were joined by Simon Dotan, Shirley Abraham and Amit Madishia, Alexis Bloom and Fisher Stevens, and moderator Leslie Kleinberg, the Film Society's executive director. Let's go now to their conversation. Restless Creature and Bright Lights have screened already at the festival to great crowds. And tonight at 9, 15 at the Bruno Walter will be another screening of Bright Lights if you didn't get a chance to see it yet. Please come. Please come. Cross the street. <laughs> I think it's around the corner, actually, from here. Um, so I, I, I didn't actually know that the Cinema Travelers filmmakers were going to be here today. I spent a lot of time thinking about the connections between these two films, because there were so many clear connections that I thought um, existed around this idea of the uh, life of an artist. Uh, when do things end? When do they begin? And how do we know? Um, and then I think those themes are, resonate actually in both of your films. Um, but these are all three you know, cinema verite films, um, films where characters are followed for long periods of time. And I thought I'd just start at the end with our team from Cinema Travelers, and maybe you can just give a, a brief, a brief, if you don't mind, description of the film and just how long you've been working on it. The Cinema Travelers is a documentary film about the last traveling cinemas of India. It follows the lives of three showmen who are striving to keep alive this uh, antiquated tradition in the midst of all the change that they are faced with. Um, Amit and I have been working on this film for eight years now. Uh, we started researching when we found that there were no records of the traveling cinemas in the history of cinema in India. And these are 70-year-old cinemas, and they had been taking cinema to the villages for so long now. And uh, history was completely dry on you know, their identity. And so we wanted to just know everything. And uh, yeah, eight years later, we have a film. So that's eight years. Just, I mean, not that we're going to keep track of how many years, but it's not unusual in the doc world for people to spend many years not only developing a film, but developing a rapport with the characters, um, and I think also raising money, too, right? That, that helps. Um, Linda and Anna? Well, um, Restless Creature is about Wendy Whalen, who uh, was principal dancer with City Ballet for, well, she was with at Lincoln Center from S since the age of... 15, going to SAB and then getting into the company and becoming a principal dancer till she, for about 30 years. And we captured her at a time of, in her career where it was a difficult time for her to figuring out what is she going to do after she leaves City Ballet. And um, the thing about Wendy is she's not just a principal dancer or a ballet dancer. She's... Beyond that, she is this extraordinary artist who uses her body as a tool and just gets this rush dancing. And to let go of that was a, a process. And um, yeah, I think it was a pivotal, a pivotal moment in her life. Um, and still figuring out, I'm an artist and I need to create. And how am I going to be able to continue to create? And I'm not able to do it in the world that I've been in since I was three years old. So we felt that to capture that moment in time, she was dealing with that and coming to terms with it and figuring it all out was really exciting for us. <laughs> um, Bright Lights is about, it's a family film and it's about show folk. It's about Carrie Fisher and her mother Debbie Reynolds who live together in a compound in, in Beverly Hills. Um, and it's about the umbilical cord and how it wraps around us for our whole lives, back and forth, back and forth. 
and it's about performing um, and how sometimes, yeah, it's, it's similarities, it, you know, that it chooses you sometimes and your relationship to do I perform, can I perform, can I not, and then I have to perform. I was interested in the um, how long you had been working with um, Debbie and Carrie, and and you had a, a prior relationship with them, or knew them, and is that how you felt you were able to? The access is actually extraordinary in the film. I think they obviously feel so comfortable with the both of you. Well, it was a bit smoke and mirrors yeah. with the access um, at times. So. Uh, Carrie and I have two great mutual friends, Griffin Dunn and Charlie Wessler, and uh, Carrie and I were in a, a very, very bad film together years ago called Undiscovered. That, no, which was undiscovered. Which was undiscovered. I knew her briefly. She was having a really crazy time in her life when we worked together, and we, we, we couldn't really connect then. When Charlie Wessler was staying with her, Debbie uh, was walking down the hill, and uh, Carrie said, I really have to film my mother. She's uh, about to go do another nightclub act in Connecticut, and how much longer can she go? She was 82 or 81 at the time. And Charlie said, you should call Lexi and Fisher. And, and they did. They called us, and we met for, uh, we had an amazing meeting. We flew to LA. We live in Brooklyn. And we flew to LA, and uh, then we, we decided that we wanted to follow them. And, at first, Carrie seemed really into it, and then after a, 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 not, not so long, she definitely seemed to have buyer's remorse. <laughs> and Debbie asked for lines. She's like, well, what are my lines? You know, she didn't really understand what a documentary was. And she really expected us to basically give her a script. We should have done that. We should have done that. <laughs> and like your film of Grabbing a Moment, this is a film where we actually, sadly, uh, we, we watched the decline of Debbie Reynolds' health. So as we started filming, Debbie started to get more and more ill. And um, we were really lucky that we started filming when we did because her health uh, seriously declined during our, our process. You know, it's interesting, like similarly, we, with Wendy, even though she had performed her entire life and had been on stage, this was a whole new experience for her. So she probably wished we'd given her some lines actually initially because it was it took time to to relax and feel comfortable with us and that's part of the process is to develop that relationship with you as we're talking talking about um, and getting to know your subject and getting them to trust you and trust them and that's actually part of the beauty of the process is that time that you take to get to know get to know the person and get them so comfortable that they start to forget and forget that the camera is actually there with them. I, you know, in, in your film, um, Shirley Ahmed, I, and I was thinking about the gentleman who's the projection repairman, the projectionist, and there's something so sad and kind of melancholy, too, because it's also about transition and the end of something. In your film, it's the end of a technology. It's the end of going around with big projectors in their trucks and uh, showing films in villages to... I won't give away. I feel like I'm going to be a spoiler. I can't... Oh, spoiler alert, sorry. Um, but I'm just, I was thinking about that character, that gentleman that you followed, uh, whose, whose name, I'm sorry, I can't remember, but um, he was just so terrific. Yes, his name is Prakash, and he's, uh, he's a projector repairman. And um, when we were starting to research the film, Prakash came to us as this myth, because we were traveling with these showmen, we were absorbing their motivations, and what is it that they do? Why do they want to keep this cinema that they are, you know, hawking from village to village annually. It's, it's, it's not something that comes to you and me, you know, every day. It's cinema is so accessible to us. And uh, so Prakash came to us as this, you know, so people would call him this, this consummate, uh, you know, the man with consummate skill. People would say that he's an artist. People would say he lives in this Aladdin's cave. And we just had to sort of, you know, wind our way and discover this man living in this really tiny workshop. And he told us the most fascinating stories of how he had repaired projectors from all over the world. India pretty much is a projector map of the world. I mean, projectors from America to Britain to Yugoslavia to Russia to Japan, you name it, and they've all come here, and he's repaired them with the greatest ingenuity um, conceivable. And he has this, this beautiful way of imagining uh, the resonance of human life and cinema. And, and 
the last thing I got to know was that he has never traveled out of his village. He has never had a formal education. And that then became really precious for us in the film, which was this very uh, human, moving uh, way of relating with cinema. Uh, just to add to that, what we're speaking about, since we spent a lot of time with him in, this, in, this, in his workshop, and he's a great storyteller, so he would tell us stories about his past and uh, how he repaired projectors, how much money he made. And uh, so, in a sense, in the film, nothing was happening in his space. So he was locked in this small workshop. He never went outside. I mean, of course, he went home, but all the action, whatever little was there. Whereas our other two characters were traversing landscapes. They were traveling with their cinemas to all these places. So how, how does this verite moment of these two people comes in juxtaposition with this man who's living all alone in this workshop? And it so happened that uh, it came through his storytelling because he was such a great storyteller that when we speak to him, it doesn't really feel like an interview. And then we happened to meet Jonathan Oppenheim, this brilliant, brilliant editor who came on board as our consulting editor. And he's somebody who gave us this, this inspiring idea of how to look at interview as behavior and not really as interview. So, you know, it, the, when we started looking at, at the storyteller and stories and not really an interview interview, I think it really changed the way he came across in the film. So, uh, just adding. Um, Linda and Adam, you also have amazing access. And, you know, I think Wendy's so revealing and natural in the film. Um, and I heard her at the Q&A said that she kind of forgot that the camera was there. I don't, I guess people can do that at a certain point. But um, how did you go about creating that access, getting that access, and how long did you shoot with her? Okay, well, we, we happens when there are two directors, they have to. We filmed for um, about a year and two months, a little more than a year, uh, and we, you know, we, we, we started with one shoot, and she really wanted to see the footage, and she was really pleased. Like you guys, we, we had Jonathan Oppenheimer, we, we had Don Lenzer, a brilliant cinematographer, who has that ability to, even though it's a big camera, he disappears. And um, she just, she, she was wowed by the, the initial footage we showed her, and then we, she trusted us. She, she just started to allow us into her world. And she's also very articulate about her feelings and processing what's going on. And she was able to convey all that very eloquently and take us on this journey. Yeah, I would say with Don, I always felt that the camera was like an appendage. You know, he, he didn't notice it after a while, and he was so discreet. And I also think, same that you're talking about, it was a conversation. We were having conversations. We never felt as that it was an interview, and it really wasn't. Um, we would just sit and talk. And over time, I think the questions that we would ask, the conversation that, that we would have, Wendy would open up. And, and, and it, it takes a little bit of time. Of course, initially, it's, it's harder. But. It seems like you had two different types of people that you were trying to follow, because Carrie and Debbie are are different and their access seems to have been different. I was re remembering that one scene where you just have the audio because you can't bring the camera in there, but yeah. the audio is worth its weight. You know, it's just, it's amazing revelation to hear that, but. Yeah, we even use it. a phone message uh, that Debbie calls Lexi and says, I, I can't shoot today. And uh, we use that because she just started getting more and more ill and didn't want us to, to film her. But the, the, the big day to inter that we did get to interview Debbie was really, I don't, if, you, if you haven't seen the film, I am going to spoil it a little bit, but we, we finally had everything ready. Debbie agreed to the interview, but she was not feeling well. And um, we were all set, and we, uh, we started the interview, and there was a beeping that kept going during the interview. And I was like, ah. Oh. So I went to the, there was a burglar alarm, and I kind of thought, okay, I, I Pressed a couple buttons and I stopped the beeping. This is a man who can't work a remote control, by the way. Well, yeah, because what happened was we started to get into the interview, and Carrie shows up in the middle of the interview, as she does, saying hello, and Debbie basically tells her to go to sleep, even though it was like four o'clock in the afternoon. And Carrie's like, okay, okay. 
and Carrie walks out just as we're getting into the interview, but Debbie was not all there and she was definitely ailing. And Carrie opened the door and the burglar alarm goes off. And it was, and Debbie just, and it's loud and Debbie just doesn't move. She it's not my day. And she's trying to remember the code, three, four, four, five. Nobody had ever, Fisher had set the burglar alarm instead of disarming it. And it had and never been had ever used, used it. it before. Yeah. <laughs> So our big day to get the Debbie interview turned into an absolute disaster, and uh, we never really got the interview, but it was, it's a cool scene in the movie, and... Uh, yeah. It actually turned into this kind of beautiful moment, pa painful moment, because you can see her ailing, and... Um, but that was... And then Carrie we just would, you know, hours of just conversation, right? It was more of a conversation. Um, wherever she was, as long as she had many cans of, of Coca-Cola and many cigarettes, um, we could go for hours with her as long as she was well stocked up in the, with supplies. Um, and what was your, how much footage, what did you shoot? I mean, sometimes those are kind of questions that you want to ask the documentary folks because it's meaningful to understand how you craft these films from you were shooting for five years, you may not have that much less than some other people that shoot, but how, how, what was your process like for editing? Uh, surprisingly, we shot for five years, but we didn't end up with a lot of footage. I, I think in, in total, we had about 120 to 30 hours of footage, which... Uh, it's not that much. It's not that much yeah. <laughs> for five years of shooting, but, but I think it so happened, the economy of shooting came because uh, I, I, my training is, I'm a photographer first, and I, this is the first film that I was shooting, so I was, maybe I was looking at image making through the economy of being a photographer. I think that really, it, it, it also became very painful in the editing because, you know, not everything was covered, and we were always looking for things, and they were, they were not there because they were not shot. But uh, the, the good part about that way of filming was that uh, there was a lot of intention behind everything that was shot, and it it came out to to be meaningful. And and what we didn't have, I think, in the editing process, it was a great creative challenge for us to find those those things that were missing. And one of the examples that I remember now is that uh, one of our characters' motivation was actually missing in 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 the film, and. We didn't know, we were really stuck, and we were like wondering how is it that we'll establish his motivation for doing what he's doing, and it's a, it's a pivotal point in the film, and we were struggling for it for days, and it just occurred maybe it could be a dream sequence, and we, we, we brought in a dream sequence, and it, it worked flawlessly. It's a beautiful way of going back into his memory, his past, and nostalgia, and provide his motivation. So uh, that less uh, number of amount of footage, but meaningful footage, I think that's, that really helped us in the film. Did you use one camera mostly, or did you have two, two cameras? Just one ca we, were the, we were the only two people in the crew, so uh, Shirley was doing the recording and I was uh, uh, filming it, so one camera. We used, uh, well, I'm a, such a bad cameraman, but I, I, tr I tried to always be the B camera, but I shake quite a bit and I'm terrible, but um, we, we tried to have just a second camera, but we had a main, one main camera, and, very often, we remember in Vegas, I mean, we only had one, Vashko. There were times, there were a lot of times when we only had one, when you don't want to mess with the intimacy. Yeah. Actually on. Yeah. 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 And how did you guys know about your shooting? We had one camera most of the time, and we, we, have, we have dance in it, and the dance scenes, we sometimes had one camera, and sometimes Once had in a while. two. Um, if we were given permission to have two, um, and, but primarily one. And I agree, particularly with the, bar the, the times we were spending talking and following Wendy around and rehearsal of one camera because of, because of the intimacy. It's absolutely yeah. important. And just keeping track, you know, it's like having a, a B camera. Getting in the way. Or, you know, like, you know, unless I can really dance with the cinematographer, you know, the other, the primary uh, director of photography, it's hard to. Make sure that it seems also more of a function of a, the sort of digital age of documentary filmmaking where people feel like, well, they can run a second camera. It's not that much harder. 
to run it, you do have to deal with all the media. But I think when we used to time. be, yeah, and you know, used to be more typical because just one camera was supposed to supply all that coverage. Um, how long were you all in the edit room with this film, uh, Linda? And um, yeah, we were a, a year, and then uh, maybe a maybe a month or two, like sporadically, just kind of working on areas that we weren't happy with. And um, we were fortunate, our editor, Bob Eisenhardt, who's brilliant, he um, was able to take another job and then we were able to like say, can you come in and work with us a couple weeks or uh, a day or two? So. Yeah, we had about 200 hours of uh, footage, which was not including archival. Although we didn't have that much archival because in the dance world there isn't actually that much. In the ballet world there's not that much archival. Yeah, to show her significance and say, oh, I gotta show it how. <laughs> And how long were you all um, editing? And how much did you end up shooting? I mean, you know, you think about it as, as having an edit room open. So we probably had the edit room open for, for a year. Mm -hmm. But then again, you have like, you have wonderfully talented assistant editors who will be working on their own for five months and then get your main editor on. And so it sort of goes up and down, you know, in terms of it's an expense basically, but um, you can staff up when you really need to and then back and people can, you know, go from film to film. And we, we screened at Cannes and uh, Lexi, we, we, we had a baby, right, uh, a second child, right, uh, when we screened at Cannes basically, and so Lex couldn't go, but I went with Nancy Abraham here from HBO and we were, we realized, you know, maybe we could tweak it a little bit and make it a little bit better because uh, it was the first time we screened it in front of hundreds of people. And so we went back in and actually and, and, and tweaked it and I think it really helped. Um, so that was good. The other thing I wanna say is we, we had uh, the, the, one of the most difficult parts in uh, making this film is the archival that we had. We had too much archival. We had, we had 30 or 40 years of Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher and Todd Fisher. The, the son uh, basically is an archivist himself. He's a family archivist. And he kept really diligent archives of the family, which is great, but also overwhelming. So we had a really difficult time figuring out what to put in and what to not use, what not. So that was a huge challenge uh, to us. And we, our editors, Sheila Shirazi and Penelope Falk, really helped us with that, um, uh, that making those decisions, so. You know, I just wanted to just, when you're saying, um, because you know, stepping back and looking at the film and then going back. That was a, it turned into a, a nice little luxury because our editor had another job lined up and that's why we were like, okay, let's, we're locked picture, locked picture. And having that time to really just sit back and put it, put it away and then look at it, you know, a month later, made you really like, okay, this is not working here. And this is not, you know, seeing it with fresh eyes again was. I think that's important. Yeah. Now, it's not typical, but it happens that we have two directors on each film that we have here represented. Um, how, I don't, you know, I'm gonna put you on the spot. How, how hard was it to work with another person? But how do you balance having two directors? Do you, do you each of these teams, do you find that um, there's a natural way that things break out or, and how does it work even through editing? Because that can be very difficult Shooting, editing, you know, getting it out there. I'm just curious how you all um, tackle that as co-directors. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult. And I, I think <laughs> yeah. um, for us, we kind of developed a superhero complex through the course of making this film because we were the only two people shooting it. I was doing sound and Amit was uh, filming. So on the field, we would, um, I would take most of the directing calls, but off the field, we would be director and producer and we would have, uh, you know, we would we would decide everything that we would want to do. We would prep together, but then we came to editing, and uh, we first had a difficult time finding trying to find an editor uh, back there in India. But um, this was also something that we wanted to just try out and see if we could do it ourselves. And uh, we did not know what we were signing up for. It is <laughs> exceptionally difficult to try and edit your own film. Um, we happened to be selected as fellows at the Sundance Lab where we met the most stellar of advisors and they kind of initiated us into 
you know, editing. But um, I think for Amit and me, our personal strengths uh, kind of complement uh, each other's. Uh, as for me, I think I don't give up on other people. I would just make sure that if there is somebody who has to do X, Y, or Z for me, they have to just do it. And Amit is someone who will never give up on himself. He's just somebody who will just take it on, take it on, take it on, while I would think that, you know, there are other people who might be able to help us do this. So I think there is somewhere that these energies kind of uh, complement and there is a way around it. Yeah, I, for us, I, in, we have a kind of a rule, and that, that is we can say absolutely anything to each other. And that, I think, is really important, that there's no feeling you're ever walking in eggshells. And I think also with who we work with as well, whether it's the editor or cinematographer, that's vitally important to us, that any idea can be thrown out there and you never feel, feel uncomfortable. That, that's, that's actually, for us, the most important thing. And I think that's what makes our relationship work. Yeah, we really, and I think we both, because it's, it worked with other people and sometimes, you know, personalities can, you know, you can clash. Um, but we really, um, we, I, I think we both like each other's style and work, and we complement each other. It, it was it was fun, sort of like, you know, or you know, like just when if someone's asking the questions or whatever, and just listening. And it's also great to have someone listening behind you, catching like, oh, okay, follow up on this one. This was a great because it's so hard to you know keep track of everything that's going on and listen. And, but what I also like is when there's two directors and an editor, I, I like the idea of having three people in the edit room where, you know, it's two against one or, you know, it's like it could be, you know, there's a, something happening and it, it's like, okay, okay, if you guys both feel that way, fine, you know, but, you know, I'm still going to bring up the problem later on, but it, it, it works. I don't know. I like the dynamic of three. Are you guys couples? Are you a couple? Are you, are you, you are, okay, so. Well, that's a whole other. I'm afraid to say anything, Lex, you talk. The giveaway is that they have children together, I guess. I mean, Lex and I, uh, I, I think it was, uh, it was a wonderful process because we, I thought brought different elements to the film. Um, she very, we produced the film, but I have to say she really produced the film. Um, she was line producing, she was producing, producing, creative producing, and um, I'm, I, I just felt so lucky that, you know, I mean it, that you, know, you were, and she's really creative, and we fought in the editing room, there's no question we didn't fight. I think with two, but, I think it's when it comes down to the choices in the edit room are, are possibly the ones most sort of full, you know, um, because that's when you decide what's in, what's yeah. out. There's, you know, stuff in the field you can find your way around um, and it's more exploratory. Then you have to start making decisions. But I think it is, I mean, collaborations are endlessly fruitful. That's how the good stuff does happen. Mm. So whether you choose to collaborate with another director or with a great editor, you have to let people in. You know, that's what makes a great film. So, you know, if you do that early and you start with another director and it works, then I think it's better. It was also great because sometimes Lex would do a shoot, sometimes I would do a shoot, and sometimes we do off. shoots together. Yeah. And it, 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 was, it really worked to our advantage. We, we actually work that way as well. And, and also we produce the films as well. So during shoots, you're right. You're just running around like a crazy person all day. Yeah. And you forget and you divide and conquer on those. And, and yes, when you get into the editor room, that's definitely a different dynamic. For sure. And when you have kids, I go pick up my kid from school, take her to tap tents. But that's good because like they can't, you can't like fire each other. Do you know what I mean? When you have children, you've got to think of getting yourself into a job where you're not going to get fired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to open up to the audience by just going to ask one question because um, in the documentary world, it is hard to raise money for films and uh, it's very hard to raise money for films about culture, not social issue documentaries where a lot of money has been uh, put into funds and other things. And I was just curious if you could just maybe each talk a little bit about your process of raising money for, the, for your projects and um, what that was like. 
if he recovered. <laughs> yeah, it just reminded me of the, you know, that whole cycle of raising funds for the film. Uh, so we were fortunate to find some support um, in India when we had started researching the film. And uh, there was one agency that helps you um, research into the arts, and that is rare and very precious for a country like ours. So uh, that was good, it was initial support. Uh, for a very long time, we really did not have any money on the film. We were just funding it through, I, mean, I was writing copy for pesticide companies. Amit was winning some photography awards and we would funnel that money into the film. Uh, I'm guessing there's nothing new about that. I mean, there's the, we've all run the gamut of fundraising. Um, then we started to, uh, by the time we had a trailer, we wanted to start pitching the film. And uh, that's, when, that's when I realized that it is so difficult to raise money about films that are uh, about the arts because they're essentially considered the unproductive films. And uh, uh, I have a roster of uh, commissioning editors who came up to me and uh, told me not to make this film because uh, where is the poverty in this film? Uh, you know, this is not what your country is about. There are so many problems in your country. How are you not going to illuminate any of those for us? So it was very, very hard to convince them that um, that cinema is really the vessel of our culture, and we need to, um, you know, and we need to tell this story. And uh, fortunately, we found support through Sundance Institute, and that is when um, it really started for us. But um, but by that time, we were pretty much uh, at least about four years into making, not making, wanting to, not knowing whether this could go anywhere with this film. And uh, after Sundance Institute, we found support uh, through Bertha Foundation Filmmaker Fund, um, the Asian network of documentary. But I think the challenge of documentary is that uh, if you, whatever stage you go to seek funding for, you always have to be advanced in that. Because if you're seeking development funding, people want to see the arc of the story. If you're seeking production funding, they want to see how those stories will develop. So in effect, you're in post-production already. And I think that is really quite a challenge for documentary filmmakers. There are very few funds that would take the risk with you. We're always the people taking the risk. Well, for us, we were very lucky, actually, because we, had a we have an extraordinary executive producer who knows Wendy, knew Wendy very well. And was the one who introduced us to her. So once we, we met, I, I knew her because our daughters danced ballet together. And so that's how the project started. So for this project, we were extremely fortunate, very unusual situation, actually. But uh, generally, it is what you're talking about. But we also, we try to put all that money into the film. So it's, we are doing all the, you know, do you think we could hire a PA on the shoe? You know, could we, could we get them? You know, or, you know, we'll just, you know, do it. I, I can do the accounting. We could do this. You know, we, the support, we don't really have. And that's, that's, that's really And also hard. just getting started. I think that's the most important thing yeah. is just that like, we got the opportunity. We got the financing to get started and start filming. And that was, that was key for us. And then it kind of snowballed from there. Um, I think we self-funded initially, and then we brought it to HBO, and then they were, you know, if you have that kind of support, it's just wonderful. So we had financial support, and we also had people who really got the film, who could help us, you know, create it. And then, you know, they didn't come in, in time for the whole film in the beginning, and we had somebody else. Yeah, we and did have got, a bit, we did have messy. a bit of a hiccup. We, 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 you know, we made a beautiful deal for uh, the domestic release with HBO, and we thought we had a deal with another company to pay the rest, and the- I'm going to uh, detail. No, no, I won't, but, the, but, but it's important that, to know that the other company just never seemed to write us a check, so then we had to start funding more ourselves, and fortunately, Nancy and Sheila Nevins and Nancy saw a rough cut, and they said, look, we'll, we'll take the whole thing, and, that was really what, what happened. Saved they saved us, yeah. But we did think, and this happens a lot, it's happened to me a few times, where you think you have money coming, you're waiting, you're waiting, and you're calling them, and you're just feeling terrible, and they just say, yeah, yeah, it's coming. It's like the check is in the mail, and it just was never coming. So it was 
a bit of a stressful moment for a while. Well, Shirley, you made a very good point, and I think it's important for those of you who are documentary filmmakers, is that there was a time where you could go into someone's office with a piece of paper and say, this is my idea, and these are the characters that I want, and can you give me development money, or can you get that money? And those days are long gone. You really do have to be really much further along. Development is now finding you've found the characters. Production is now you've shot a bunch of stuff already and you can do a trailer. So um, that dynamic has changed, and not just for uh, films about culture, but about social issue documentaries too. I think all filmmakers go through that in the doc field. Um, funding is a chronic source of heartache for documentary filmmakers, that's for sure. Um, I just want to take for some... all filmmakers, I yeah. have to say, any independent film. I mean, feature filmmakers too, I think. That's true. Um, I was just trying to, you know, documentary, we're trying to... But yes, it's true that we're it's, you know, fil independent films, and I think this festival, as you know, um, you know, features uh, a lot of films that um, not only have trouble getting funding to be made, uh, but may not even get distribution in this country. Um, our country is one of the only ones that doesn't provide funding for filmmakers, narrative or nonfiction filmmakers, and I think you see in Europe and other countries that support of filmmakers uh, in the production of their films still exists, um, but it's still challenging here, and you're right, in, in narrative and in nonfiction, no question about it. Um, are there some questions from the audience? Yes, sir. Everyone is using the word film. I just wonder if you all use video. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I also wonder about the age of your ballerina and what were her options after dancing? Choreography, acrobatics? You got to see the film. <laughs> <laughs> She said, you got to see the film. <laughs> well, and that was really what she was dealing with. And she, she did not want to give up dancing. Like, you know, many ballet dancers go on to teach and were working with different companies. But for her, she was aging out of the ballet world, but she was looking for other ways to express herself. And um, we follow that in the story. There was also that, that rush. She loves to that that creating in the rehearsal room with the choreographer. The the rush of creating this new piece, and that it was it's like, how am I going to do this? You know, and using her body as a tool. Was, and she was 46 when we started filming her, and she retired at 47. While we were filming, she was she makes that decision. Which is for ballet. Is old. Yeah. Yeah. Um, question up here, in the back. Hi. Um, you talked about uh, having a, a key to your success, having a relationship with your characters. And you obviously have to balance that with the duty to the arc of the story, which may get in un uncomfortable places. So how do you guys think about that? How do you, did you have conversations with the people? And for example, I don't know how Carrie felt about the Eddie, Eddie Fisher footage, but I found it so painful to watch, you know, I can't imagine how she felt. So does she know you put it in there? Did you have conversations? So that's footage that you probably want in there that she might not want. And was there footage that they wanted that you didn't want in there? And the, the whole subject of how do you balance their demands, especially their performers, they have a point of view about what they want to see on screen or what they don't want to see on screen. And there's some similar things with Wendy, I think that could have been featured in the film that you might want for the arc of the story. How do you earn their trust, but do what you need to do? Well, last night, um, now Carrie had seen versions of the film, but last night while we, she, she uh, when the scene came with her father, she started weeping uh, uncontrollably and had to leave the theater and we had to go out and console, you know, console her. And, um, and she had, she knew it was, it was in the film. Um, she had originally asked us, I think, to take it out. And then um, we, you know, we, said we think it's important and she was fine with it. Um, and she still is fine with it, but it was, uh, it was very emotional for her last night. Um, yeah, I think Lex and I really 
we didn't want to hurt them. I mean, you don't want to hurt your subjects. You want, you want to make an honest film, an honest portrayal of characters, but we didn't set out to, to damage them or make them feel bad in any way. So we were very careful, but we also really fought for certain things that I know Carrie didn't necessarily want, but we, we fought. And then, you know, she wanted a little scene trimmed a little bit at the tail because she didn't like the way she looked. I mean, we were sensitive to that to a certain extent, but not always. Yeah, I think you can always, you know, you want to work with people, but if you start out the film, I think it's important to be clear from the beginning. If any of you go and make films, like from the beginning, you tell the people, you know, this is, you know, our film and there's no discussion that they can have final cut, you know, and then everyone kind of knows. And you work around, it's a case-by-case -case basis. If somebody finds something completely hideous and is very upset by it, and it's not, you know, fundamental to your storytelling, you should consider changing that, you know? But, you, you know, it's just, just opening up the considerations. I don't know. I agree completely. I, you, we take the same approach, never want to hurt our subjects, and that's not what we're about. We're not gotcha filmmakers, anything like that. You are working with them. And sometimes there is a discussion, and you have to really be able to explain why it's so important to keep that in the film, because it's humanizing. It's making you, you know, we're, we are, we're, we're dynamic people, so we have greatness, and we have things that are, are troubling. But in order to, to tell that human story, you, you need that. And, and it can be challenging at times, and sometimes things come up that you never expect. Um, like we had a scene in the film <laughs> where Wendy was being cut, and you probably from watching the Olympics, you saw you know, these athletes being cut, but she was being cut in the groin area, and it was, she was in a lot of pain, and she- Torture, she, like, Yeah, and for us it was, it was helpful in the story time because dancers, particularly ballet dancers, they're taught not to show any pain ever. And that was a challenge for us because she was so stoic. But in this case, she was being, and, but it was in her groin area and she was uncomfortable with it. And it really, really bothered her. And she asked us to please take it out and we, we agreed. And we didn't feel that it was vital to the story. But she also left it to our decision. She's like, I really could take something out of like the cupping scene, but you know, you guys make that decision, but it, I had to leave something. Have your subjects seen your film, sure? Yes, they've seen their individual portions, but they've not seen how it all comes together. Oh, yeah. And um, I think I agree with uh, what you were saying about uh, you know developing this trust. And very often when we are making films, we spend so much time getting to know how our subjects or our characters work or how their processes work. But the reverse is not true. They do not know our process. They do mm -hmm. not know our motivations. So I think once they start on this journey with us about understanding the filmmaking process, then they're, then they're also more sympathetic to the needs of our storytelling than us just you know, being these people who want to understand their ways of life. So I think once, once the reverse process starts, then, then these decisions and these conversations become easier. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm just curious uh, how you go about choosing your subjects, and in particular, one matter. The two filmmakers that are over here chose somebody who was really not known. And on the other side, you chose somebody that's quite known and you kind of chose somebody in the middle. Do you consider when you're choosing subject, notoriety of the subject? How do you go about choosing your subjects? I, uh, so there are three. And would you next time maybe choose somebody uh, it would completely depend on the story that they would uh, bring to the film. But uh, particularly in the case of our film on traveling cinemas, it was about, um, it was about value systems. And uh, we have three characters in the film. We were speaking about one because he comes across as uh, the most eloquent and he kind of embodies the spirit of the film, the projector mechanic. Um, but there are two showmen in the film and there is one projector mechanic. And uh, while we were working with them, uh, we knew that uh, this, this world of traveling cinema is standing at a moment of change. And we wanted to uh, find three people who will 
potentially look at this moment of change differently, who will have uh, different associations with these traveling cinemas that they have nurtured for decades and decades. And in a sense, we found, uh, to, to be more specific, we found one person who was um, interested in the livelihood of it, in the here and now of it, and cinema is money. And uh, there was somebody who was uh, looking at his legacy, who was, uh, you know, who wanted to be remembered as this man who brought the movies on a cinema truck. And uh, then there was this third projector mechanic who was, um, who was, who was essentially a man of the imagination. I mean, he's a man of his machines, but more importantly, a man of his imagination. And uh, these three people also had uh, had varying ways to look at time. And time was very important in this film that talks about how we all deal with change. And uh, you know, for somebody who's looking at immediate business versus somebody who looks at the glory of the past. And then there's a third person who's kind of like the bridge between the two. So uh, these value systems helped us uh, lock down these three people who we wanted to work with. Well, for, for, yeah, no, well, for, for our subject, yeah. Well, for I didn't know that much about Wendy, but I mentioned her to Linda, who's a big ballet fan. Well, he, he called and he said uh, he was he met he there's this ballerina that we may be doing a film on, and I went Wendy Whalen, <laughs> and he said, "How did you know?" And I was like, "We have we're doing this. We have to. We have to." She was. See, I I go to City Ballet. I, my husband, when we started dating, me introduced me to City Ballet. And uh, that 15 years ago, I went there and I saw her, and you're just like, who is she? And it was just. Yeah, and then to be able to capture her at that moment in life, not already retired, telling the story, going backwards, but actually going through it, for us, that was fascinating. And also for an athlete to see an athlete, because they're athletes. I mean, in the film, someone says they're God's greatest athletes, and they, you know, to watch that process, I used to joke with. Wendy, that Derek Jeter was the Wendy Well in baseball. <laughs> it was going at the same time, same process. And so to be able to, so once you realize this is an extraordinary contemporary ballet dancer, arguably one of the greatest American dancers of our time, and to see her going through this, and also having had that long career, extraordinarily long career, that putting it together, you felt was compelling. I mean, the, 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 you asked two questions, you know, notoriety was the first one, right? How, how, yeah, how big is that? Yeah, yeah. how important is that for you at this Notori point in your yeah. Notoriety doesn't hurt. I mean, right. you know, it can only help you fund a film, sure. to be honest, and get bums on seats, you know, because people are like, oh, you know, it's that person. It can't, but you can't, you know, it would be a soulless endeavor if you just did fame and there was... They had nothing interesting to say. You know, and if you really needed the money, I would understand you making that film because probably it would get funded. But like, do you want to make a film about, like the Kardashians have their reality show? But you know, something like that. It's you know, gonna be my next you, picture. Yeah. So each of them, don't tell everyone fish. Kim and Kanye. Yeah, it's about the burglary. Ooh, I've told it. Um, but it does, it can't, if you're honest, you know, it can't it can't hurt if, if you know a huge Bollywood star saw your film and said, God, I loved it. Will you make a film about, you know, my leading lady? She's great. You know, you'd, there'd be part of you that would be like, yeah, I'll do that, because like, people will watch it. But they've got to have an interesting story. And when we met Carrie, you know, we knew she was well-known, but it, that was forefront, you know, what is she gonna say, you know? But I did not honestly want to do the film. When, when they called me, I was like, oh, I don't know. I, I didn't know anything about Debbie Reynolds. She never interested me, to be honest. And, and then, no, I didn't. And then Lexi is like, let's go, let's go meet them. Let's just go try, let's explore it. It was really Lexi saying, you know, let's go. And when, as soon as we spent, literally, we sat down, we went to Carrie's house. We, in five minutes of speaking with Carrie, I was like completely sold. I was like, oh my God. And then when we met Debbie that day, it, it blew my mind. I was like, this woman is incredible. And this story has to be told. And I was completely, but, but really Lexi pushed it. Um, because actors, I can tell you, because I am one, are very difficult to work with. You know, I don't know about ballerinas or projectionists, but 
actors are a pain in the ass, man. You know, you, you show up, you wait, you know, we wait. And, you know, but, I, but they're also amazing and fascinating and beautiful. And so you, you, uh, you know, it, it's a, it, it, I'm so glad that we chose, that we did it. I mean, it was a beautiful experience. I think we have time for one more question. We have one more out there. Uh, Dan, I love it. Come on, bring it on. Wait one second. We use the Avid. Editing systems and color correcting. Technical. Technical. Avid for editing because it's really just machine, but color correcting, it's really the, the colorist. We go for the, the whatever the color, you know, it's an, art, art, that's it's an, an art, art form. Mm -hmm. And so it's not about the machine, it's really the person behind that machine and having the tools to do what they need to do. Yeah, we have the best colorist in the world. No, we, no, do. we do. No, we have the best. <laughs> we do. It's probably the same one. Will Cox. Will Cox? No. Oh, okay. Uh, but I, I know your colorist. But it is, it, it, color, I have to say for documentaries, especially when you're going to project them, it's, yeah. they're, they're a character in your whole, you need a great colorist and there are not very many good ones for docs because they don't, it's a very difficult process for, because you're using archival, you're, some days you're not using the same camera, I don't know, if, you know, you change cameras, you change cameramen, it, and to make it all look uniform. And I have to say, we were so lucky when we screened it last night at Alice Tully Hall and to see it big, it was the first time Lexi and I were like, wow, it was amazing to see, like, you know. Exactly. Our, our colorist is Jane Talmuch. I can't pronounce her last name, and, and, but okay. she's here in New York and she's brilliant. at Do Art and she's brilliant. And I want to definitely give her a shout out because yeah. she's great. And but, see, we had the same experience when we showed it at the Walter Reed, to see it on that screen, just was incredible. Yeah. And it's also because she comes from you know, back in the day when she was on the Da Vinci where she was limited because it's really, you know, going film, you know, just, you can only change, you know, it's all linear versus nonlinear. And now with the, the new machines that have come in, it allows them to, to, oh, I can, I can just do this section or I can just do this area and she can do more, you know, she, she has that eye. Uh, Sorry, <laughs> uh, so we have the film on Final Cut Pro 7, not the new one, which is weird. Uh, and uh, of course, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of a colorist on a film. So we also got uh, a colorist, and he used a base light system, which is quite good. And, uh, that's what but you must have been very. Because you're a photographer, you must have been very specific, right? And uh, I wanted to be, but the, I mean, there's a limit to what you can do, and right. you know, like because I mean, in a photograph, you can really go the whole hog, but when you're looking at moving images, then it it becomes exponentially difficult to make those kind of changes, and also, also the budget. I mean, you have very limited resources to be able to do that. So, uh, uh, but uh, I think the job of a colorist is great as you both emphasize, and this was the first time that I was working with one and I really loved it. And your film is really beautifully, really beautiful. What did you shoot on? Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, just, um, you, you were saying that Amit would be very, very specific, and I just wanted to say that post-production for us was learning how to let go, because <laughs> that was when other people actually entered the process for us, and that is when you realize that, okay, other people do things differently, and, and you might, you know, we, we've gone 700 miles just to make one image that we thought we did not make well the last time around when the cinemas came visiting, so we had waited for one year to make those images, and... So you, you have the, those kind of motivations towards your own film. And it's also our first feature film. So you know, you, all your regrets are only retrospective. Oh, I didn't do you know, that thing well then. But uh, yeah, you want to speak about it. Uh, yeah, so we used Canon 5D Mark II because we started filming in 2011. And that was the time when it was, the camera was yeah. doing really peak, at its peak in independent film circle. So we started that. and. Uh, one thing we, what we did was that we didn't change the camera through this process, so there were much better technology that came, but we kind of stuck with it because uh, I didn't want to mix the formats and the color and everything, and so it really paid off in, in the end. And uh, when, when we were going to, when we were color correcting the film, there was nobody who was going to take a documentary to color correct, because we were talking to all these big, big guys who work on Bollywood films, so 
one of the guys he came forward and he took the film and he has done he had he had done some really big blockbuster bollywood films and you know his colleagues were saying so you're going to do a documentary film what's wrong with you and uh, <laughs> then uh, a few days into the color correction and some of his colleagues come and say so what what is this shot on alexa or red or what's that and then this guy's like he's vindicated he's like see i chose the right film <laughs> Dan, do you have a question you want to? Can I wait? You can give you one. Give you. I'm interested in general question of what you're all doing next, but I specifically would like to ask. You can either answer that generally, or was there something you learned in this in shooting this film that made you want to tackle something else? So, for example, Fisher in your film, I was so fascinated by Carrie Fisher's uh, handler, her assistant, that Corby. Yeah, that character. Oh, just, in the movie, Abe. Abe. Yeah, I yeah. just thought, God, there are these people that take care of those people. Yeah. They're so interesting, you know, and that would be interesting. And in your film, when, he, when, when the doctor is so interesting, right? But anyway, was there something in these films that made you want to do something else, or what else are you working on next? Well, um, yeah, they, the, Abe is no longer her assistant. She has a new assistant who was with her last night, Abe. But Abe was a trip, and we have... Lots of footage of Abe. We're maybe doing Abe a sequel movie. about Abe. Abe Gurko, <laughs> assistant to Carrie Fisher. Uh, he's hilarious. Um, I actually was making a film concurrently with this film, um, which is also in the festival circuit um, and actually coming out October 30th uh, with another celebrity, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. It's called Before the Flood. So uh, it's an environmental, it's very different than this. And, um, and that's what I'm kind of working it's on. It's like the opposite. I don't think this film informed that decision. Or, At all. And I don't... No, yeah. except, yeah, I, I would kind of like to take a break from celebrity and maybe do something with, um, except maybe uh, Gary Fisher, the dog. I'm also, <laughs> that would be, he's getting a lot of press. Um, no, so I, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do next. Um, I have a few ideas, but um, I'd like to do something a, a quieter, I would say, is the word that comes to mind. I don't know. So I, first of all, with the doctor, uh, he came to the premiere, and I, I, he was very happy. I was wondering if he was happy or relieved. I wasn't quite sure. But he, um, it's funny, because originally Wendy was going to have her surgery in New York, and they, the hospital in New York was not going to give us permission to film the surgery. And then last minute, she changed her mind and decided to go out to the Stedman Clinic at Bell, in Bell and have it there. And Dr. Philippon said, sure, come on in, film away. And he, thank God he did. I mean, that was fantastic. Um, so with regard to, and we filmed the entire surgery, which ended up being over four hours, four or five hours long, which was much more extensive than it was originally going to be. With regard to our next projects, we, in documentary world, you have quite a few that are out there, and then hopefully one sticks. But Should we're working. One of one money. of the projects we're working on right now is um, on women's in the world of women's basketball. Um, which, amazing athletes, yeah, amazing, amazing women, women, amazing yeah. role models, amazing yeah. life stories. And, and uh, we just got to get the money. <laughs> or, or as Ellen Moore said, a Netflix series. Yeah. Which you <laughs> Uh, yeah, two things I think. Uh, one is uh, bracing ourselves up for the next feature film because it's taken us eight years to do one. So it's going to take a lot of um, thinking and consideration to launch into one more and whether you want to do one more, but I guess we do. Um, in the meantime, we're doing an opt-up for New York Times. It's about... Uh, it's something to do with myth-making in, uh, in this resurgent India of today, as we see now. Well, I just want to thank everyone for coming tonight and thank our documentary filmmakers. And uh, films are screening again tonight. Again, Bright Lights is screening at 9.15 at the Bruno Walter. Um, Cinema Travelers screens tomorrow. Uh, and, but there's two or three screenings of that. And Restless Creature, do you have two more screenings? Yes, Thursday night. Yeah. Don't miss them. These are three really, really great films, and you'll really you'll just get so much out of them, and we're so proud to have them at the festival. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The 
close-up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a non-profit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.